Anyway, welcome. My name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here as well. I would also like to welcome you to InTown Community Church. We've been in a series over the last few weeks where we've been unpacking or explaining, rather, our church mission statement, the idea that we are loving our community to life by pursuing gospel restoration. And we've been doing that through a framework of three words, changed and known and sent, this belief that God is changing us and we know God. God knows us and we know each other better in the life of the church. And this catapults us out, sends us out into our local community and into our world. And that's what it means to love our community to life by pursuing gospel restoration. Today, we look at Scripture, the Bible. Two weeks ago, Jimmy talked to us about being changed by God through prayer. Last week, Andrew talked to us about worship. So this week, we'll be looking at how we are changed by God through Scripture. And Mark's going to come and read for us for a moment. From John's Gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the word of God, John tells us. The word become flesh, and so we pray Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that this would never, any week, be an academic exercise, but it would be an encounter with you. We pray that especially for this morning in your name. Amen. Bit of a disclaimer this morning to speak to you a little bit about where my head was growing up and where actually my head was this week as I prepared for this sermon Growing up, any time I knew a sermon was coming about the Bible, I feared the worst. And the reason I feared the worst was because I knew on the back end of any sermon I would hear about the Bible that I would feel great guilt and shame for not reading the Bible enough, for not knowing it enough, for not encountering it enough. I would, despite how many times I read it, a day, a week, a month, a year would always perceive dust on the cover, and I would feel guilty for not engaging the Bible. My deep hope this morning, as we do talk about God changing us through Scripture, is that that would be the last thing on your mind. This is not about drumming up will in your life to crack open a book and to somehow incorporate that into your life. I'd love to talk to you about reading your Bible and ways that you can engage your own particular learning style and hunger for the Word of God, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. For others of you, you might not have grown up like me at all. I grew up in the church. I grew up around Christianity. For some of you, that might not be your story. You might be encountering the Word of God, perhaps even for the first time this morning, or for the first time because of connecting with Western culture, or for the first time because you have um, grown up in kind of a cultural Christianity, but always thought of the Bible as an, an idea that other people read, but not you. And so you may come as well this morning to this idea of Scripture 
with preconceived notions, with stereotypes about how you're supposed to engage the Bible. Likewise, I hope this morning you do not walk away feeling like this was a sermon about reading your Bible. Because the reality is this. The point of the Bible is not the Bible. The point of the Bible, the point of Scripture, is that God uses it to change us. We are changed by God through Scripture. Now, as we get started this morning, I want to unpack that. We'll spend a couple of minutes on it. But before I do, I want to acknowledge that even though we are, in fact, changed by God through Scripture, we're going to talk about how that happens. If we look at that thesis statement and we play around with the words a little bit, in our minds, consciously or unconsciously, we can create one of two errors. We can import an idol, if you will, into our hearts. If we de-emphasize the idea of that we're changed by God through Scripture, the changed part, what we can do is we can import an, an idol of knowledge into our hearts and into our minds. And an idol of knowledge would essentially say this, realistically, we don't need to be changed. Or, or if we do need to be changed, we only need to be changed such that sort of the, the content of our mind would raise. We need to fill the hard drive up, but the CPU, it's fine. This is a grave error, and it's unfortunately an error that we can fall into quite often. It misses the fact that throughout Scripture, often the individuals with the highest biblical content are the ones who wrestle the most with the gospel. The Pharisees, for example, these political party who love the law deeply, the scribes of the law, the individuals whose literal job it was to know by heart the scripture, to copy it down, but also to teach it. To be honest, the demons even are on this list, individuals who know so much about God and yet somehow miss the fact that knowledge by itself does not change us. Knowledge by itself does not equate to a relationship. We have lots of practical expressions of this. Again, they're often implicit and not explicit versions of idolatry. Here's one. How do you define Christian maturity? Most of us probably wouldn't say it outright, but implicitly we can often define Christian maturity by how much somebody knows about God, by how big the books they read about God are. Or perhaps even another version of it, how articulate they are about passing back that knowledge to somebody else. So you're a mature Christian if you can teach a Sunday school class. You're a mature Christian if you've read Tim Keller's new book on X or Y or Z. You're a mature Christian if you made it through your reading plan this year. Are you a mature Christian if you struggle to read? What if you have dyslexia? Some of you guys have adult ADHD. It's hard for you to even make it through a sermon. Are you not a mature Christian? Are our children sometimes pressured to have a sense of maturity in this way? Are you a mature Christian? Are your children mature because they can say a right answer in a class? Are they mature because they can quickly recall information, Bible memorization? 
Or are they mature Christians because they can repent well? Are they mature Christians because they empathize with others? Are they mature Christians because they have an actual sense of their sin, not simply a definition of it? The idol of knowledge works into us deeply, especially in an information-laden culture. Now, what I don't want you to hear at all is that we, we can somehow strip away the concept of content from our Bibles, from our faith. We are indeed, and have been called throughout history, a people of the book. Why? Because we have one book. We don't have a great series of sacred texts that have emerged and have morphed and changed as more and more were added. We have a closed canon. We have a book that, yes, came together from over 40 people over 2,000 years in multiple languages, and yet God in his sovereignty has seen it fit to both act in history, but also to record, to allow it to be recorded, those works. That, that matters. We can't discard that. But we have to be very, very careful how we define what it means to engage. Otherwise, we become what English poet Robert Browning called those who desire not to live, but simply to know, and in so doing, to live a livingless existence. I, I encounter this sometimes in my own heart, just full confession here, um, in how I deal with people who suffer. Common practice when you hear about somebody who suffers is to pray for them. It's good. It's to be sad with them. Also good. But full confession, where my mind often goes when somebody tells me they're struggling with something is a book recommendation. On one hand, I love reading. I love books. And I, if you've been to my office, you'll see stacks upon stacks of disorganized books that long to be read and someday will be, maybe. Um, but but, but, but what I, where I feel that personally is the belief that if I am struggling with something or if somebody else is and they can just learn about it more, that will fix them. If I'm struggling in my faith and I can just work my way up to working through the book of the Bible that addresses that, I'll be better. But an idol of knowledge is arrogant. An idol of knowledge looks at the biblical text as an object to be mastered, not as the voice of a God to be known. We must be careful that we avoid an idol of knowledge. Now, the idol of knowledge, though, is only half of the problem. We are changed by God through Scripture. If an idol of knowledge de-emphasizes the changed part, another idol, an idol of agency, can de-emphasize the fact that we're changed by God. An idol of agency says this, okay, yeah, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, we need to be changed. But what's going to change us? And especially in our Western culture, where we implicitly go to is that we can be changed by ourselves. We can be changed by something we connect to. We can be changed by an effort we give in a certain area in our life. That is not either the biblical equation. We are changed by God through Scripture. We're not changed by CrossFit. 
We're not changed by our diet. We're not changed by a self-help book. We're not changed by getting our kid into the right school and keeping them there. We are not changed by finally getting all of the kids out of the house and still alive. We are not changed by a new job or a new location. We are not changed by a therapist. We are changed by God. Now, as I say all of those things, there's something somewhat unique about them. They're, they're good things. I mean, I stand here as somebody who would love, if we had much more time, to tell you the biblical respo- uh, reasons why therapy is often a wonderful thing. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to take care of your body and what God is challenging me in that area. Well, I'd love to talk to you about all of these different good things in which we actually theologically would call the common graces of God in our culture. But it is so easy, especially in the South, especially in a a cultural Christian milieu, to kind of give a nod to Jesus, especially on a Sunday morning, say, hey, that's where I put, that's where I check my spirituality box, that's where I remember, yeah, Jesus is actually the most important thing in my life. But realistically, where's my hope come from? Where's my joy come from? What is changing my life? Is something else. Even good things can become ultimate things. And friends, when ultimate things or, or things try to become ultimate things, we find that they're not. We find that they're lacking. An idol of agency tells us that realistically you're supposed to say, okay, Jesus, I've got him. Now God wants me to flourish in this other way in this other area. Instead of saying that the depths of God are worth plumbing for all of your life, and that as you eat or drink or do whatever else you do, God is never divorced from those things. He is always challenging you. He is always challenging me to think, how is he changing us in the midst of this? And where does Scripture speak into that? I'd love to talk with you and be challenged by you when you talk to me about how perhaps Jesus is in your CrossFit and what it means for Scripture to encourage you in that area. I'd love to talk to you about questions of vocation and questions of how Scripture can speak into the very details, mundane details, in fact, of your life. And that's where we're going this morning How does God change us in every area of our life through Scripture? I love how Andrew put that just a second ago. Another way, how does the Bible create new life in you? It's the purpose of John, what Mark read just a minute ago. John was saying that all of these things that Jesus did, and he in fact did many, many more, weren't simply written down for you to know them. They were written down so that you would be changed by them. Do you notice the passive voice there? Some of you are grammar nerds and you love that. Some of you are grammar nerds and you hate the passive voice. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. If you've ever had Microsoft Word underline something in green and you didn't understand why, it was probably because you were writing in what um, grammaticians call the passive voice, which... 
apparently, unless you are a part of certain scientific communities, is not liked in this world. I'm learning this very, very slowly because I love writing in the passive voice. It makes sentences longer and therefore papers easier to write. But it also means, it also means what the passive voice is, is that it takes the emphasis off of the subject. Or rather, the the subject is in a different spot than you would expect. So instead of saying, we change ourselves by reading Scripture, we read Scripture and thus we change ourselves, we are changed by Scripture. Or rather, we could say it actively, God changes us. This matters for us because it means that Scripture stops becoming, again, a tool. This is not ten ways to read your Bible better. This is not your Bible says this or that or another thing. These things can't be blogged, if you will. God is changing you through Scripture. How does he do it? We could spend an hour going over different ways in which he does in Scripture. It's the nature of a topical sermon that looks at all of Scripture, but... This morning, I want to look at three ways very quickly that he does so. And the first is this, that he uses Scripture to ground us in a story. Interviews that are given nowadays uh, by research organizations who are studying why people leave the church, especially people my age and those younger than I, whom I teach and have been called by you all to teach, millennials, Gen Z, people— seemingly are living, leaving the church in droves. And one of the key reasons why they, are often, they often cite in these interviews that they leave the church is that they don't feel connected to their church. But what they're talking about is not a sense of community. They're not saying they don't feel loved by their church. They don't feel like saying not, they don't feel like a part of their church. They simply don't understand why the church is there. And a big part of that is that they don't feel like it is grounded in anything that actually matters. That church is a time that you go and you participate in a religious ritual on a Sunday. Again, get that box checked off and move forward with your life. One of the beauties of Scripture that God calls us to is to realize that we are participants in a wider story. This is likely, unfortunately, a, a byproduct of perhaps an overemphasis in our culture on a sense of personal faith and personal salvation. Again, not a bad thing to an extent. Jesus interacts with all of us individually. You're not saved because your parents were saved or because you come from Georgia or because you don't come from Georgia or whatever. But rather, this sense that you have been constituted as a people. You're gathered together, and most of the time when God talks about engaging with people, he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about this gathered people of God. What this means is that you have a history. I don't know my history. Some of you do. It's it's all the rage now to get DNA kits and genetic testing done or to go back and work genealogies back through and find out where you're from and your parents were from and your grandparents were from. I don't really know much past my grandparents. I'm excited maybe someday to do that work, but I I recognize that I live in this listless place in some respects in culture. 
And I think sometimes it's why I envy and I gravitate towards individuals who have that piece of themselves. People who can say, you know, I'm German. And, you know, they, they, they dig into Oktoberfest and love it. People who can say, you know, I'm, I'm from this area. There are times I don't even feel Southern. Like, I go to other places in the country, and they expect not only for me to, to, to use a southern drawl, but to be like a master of southern cooking and to only listen to bluegrass and to have—and and, and I just—I don't have that. And sometimes I, I regret that. Why do I regret that? Why? Because there's a sense of grounding. There's a sense of purpose when you know where you come from and when it's not just about you deciding what you're going to do with your existence— but it's you as a part of a larger culture, a larger movement making that decision together. Guess what? You have been called and constituted as a people of God who are a part of a movement started and sustained by God that gives you and my life purpose. One of my favorite verses about children's ministry, Deuteronomy chapter 6, many of you know, Moses writes one of the largest sermons in all of Scripture, the book of Deuteronomy. And the first five chapters of the book of Deuteronomy are Moses, before he dies, standing on a mountain, talking to the people of Israel and telling them their history. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he tells them, by the way, you who I have just told your history to, it's your job to continue to tell it to your children, to pass it on to do it when you wake up and when you lie down and when you take them to work with you. And in fact, someday, your son, your daughter, they're going to come by and they're going to say, Mommy, Daddy, why do we do this? And then there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it gives language to the Israelites to tell them why. Why is that important? Because it, it constitutes those children into a wider story. God changes us through Scripture because he gives us this new identity, a new sense of purpose, a new story. Secondly, beyond grounding us in a story, when God changes us through Scripture, he is engaging us holistically. He's engaging us holistically. Again, this is why it's important that we, we, we look away from an idol of knowledge. We can sometimes think that the Bible exists for God to interact with our minds. And things like maybe worship are supposed to, like, interact with our heart. And things like serving God in the church are supposed to interact with the physical or social elements of who we are. That disjointed life will drive you insane. Part of the reason that it will drive you insane is because, again, some of you have greater proclivities to certain pieces of that than others. I mean, there are, in fact, entire denominations. Let's just be honest, Right? that lean towards one of those pieces or the other. In fact, I'm probably speaking to the choir, uh-huh, when I say the choir, where um, we're talking to Presbyterians, right? For many of us, we do have proclivities towards the mind, towards cognition. The Reformed faith can sometimes lean that way. It's a tragedy. There are entire denominations that interact, right, at what we would think to be a heart level. God knows none of this. God has created us as whole beings. And our faith, whatever denomination, should interact with every part of who we are. And God made a Bible. 
with which he changes us in every part. I've been deeply impacted by uh, the late theologian Eugene Peterson in this area. Peterson writes this, When we approach the biblical text, instead of asking, what does it mean, which is what people usually do, we should ask, what is it doing? How do I enter into this? How does it enter into me? We are a part of a holy community that for 3,000 years and more has been formed inside and out by these words of God. Words that have been tasted, chewed, seen, walked. Reading Holy Scripture is totally physical. Peterson tells this story, and, and he puts it in a section that, that even just the title of the chapter blows my mind, Participatory Imagination. He tells this story of growing up in the 1940s and 50s in Montana. His father was a butcher. And um, I grew up thinking that meat came from the supermarket. And um, it was largely bloodless. And therefore, you know, just like meat came out frozen, right? I say that only with some jest. It was years and years before I'd ever actually seen an animal killed in real life. But Peterson grew up watching his dad slaughter animals and prepare them for people. He grew up watching his dad put on a bloodied apron every day, sharpen his knives, and go to work. And slowly, when uh, Peterson was of age, so eight, nine, ten years old, his mother made for him a tiny apron as well. And he went to work apprenticing for his dad. Now, at the same time, Jesus was doing something in Peterson's life. His father was not religious. His mother loved Jesus, and she loved her Bible. And she told him story after story and taught him to read and to write. And he got into the Scripture, and like, unfortunately, most boys especially, he hated the thing. He struggled to read. He struggled to connect with it. He was too active. He wanted to get outside the classroom. But then he realized that his mother would read stories about the Old Testament priests. And then he would put an apron on and walk into a butcher shop and kill animals and prepare them. And what he did, he found in Scripture real language, whole-bodied story, picture that related to real life. Now, some of you push around spreadsheets all day. I get that. The walls of your your cubicle do not smell like the Old Testament or the New. I get that. But God changing us through Scripture means acknowledging that Scripture is not a two to 4,000-year-old ancient sacred text that only comes out of a golden box somewhere and floated down to us from heaven. It is the blood and the sweat and the tears of real people who maybe cannot imagine what you do on your computer if that's what you do for a living, but they can imagine the hard work and the pain and the exhaustion that it takes to come home every day. They can understand what it means to long for a day off. It's not some sanitized theological concept of Sabbath. It is exhaustion when you fall into bed and you long desperately for the day you don't have to wake up before dawn and do X or Y or Z. 
The Bible is real. It is living. And therefore, we are called to use our facilities that God has given us to engage it, not simply in this academic way, but with all of our senses, with every part of who we are. I would recommend, in fact, just as, as a principle for you, go home today, go home this week, think about what you do for a living. Do you stay home? Do you go somewhere? Do you work from home? Do you travel a lot? Where are the themes that you can find in Scripture from what you do? Just start there. I'm not saying you have to discover your profession magically somewhere in Scripture. I'm just saying start there. And consider the way in which the Bible might walk alongside you, with you. And what could God be doing in that moment to soften your heart and allow you to learn from him? Finally, he grounds us. He holistically connects to us. He penetrates us through the gospel. This is the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the hearts of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So scriptures like that are the shame scriptures in my past. And I'll be honest, even right now, if I was listening to this sermon, this would be the, oh yeah, okay. Two-thirds of that sermon was, was great. Maybe it wasn't, but two-thirds of that sermon was great. But this is where the hammer drops. This is where you're going to tell me I need to read my Bible, and if not, I'm going to feel bad. Because, yeah, the Bible grounds us in story and all that flowery stuff, but no, the Bible is sharper. It's a sword. It penetrates. It gets in. It does work. Yes, but... In fact, we, we've used scriptures like that as a weapon. I'm sorry if you grew up in church where that ever happened. Think back to last week. For those of you who are not here with us, um, can't do a summary of all of Andrew's wonderful sermon last week, but, but he did engage us on John chapter 4 and the idea that Jesus meets this woman at the well. And when he meets the woman at the well, he knows her. He knows incredible things about her, so much so that she does recognize him as at least a prophet. And he calls out her shame. He tells her flat out that she's had five husbands. The guy she's with now is not her husband either. He completely sidesteps a theological question and engages her heart. Yet she doesn't walk away from that encounter sad. She doesn't walk away from that encounter feeling shame, even though he named her sin. In fact, she walks away from that encounter exactly the opposite. Look at me. Look. Look at this guy who told me everything I ever did. And her whole town has changed. Why would the Jesus, who is the living word of God, the Holy Spirit who illuminates this and speaks out of it, be a different character, be of a different character than the Jesus inside it. Why would Jesus meet you in Scripture with shame, with judgment, when he met people like the woman at the well with such grace? 
Scripture changes us here the same way Jesus changed people there. God does not change. And so when you and I are meant to encounter Scripture, we are indeed to read it and be cut to the quick. Scripture has this beautifully annoying way of just diving straight in and saying things that you don't want it to say. It has this way of sticking with you and you having to try to ignore the pieces that you don't want to speak into your life. And yet, the purpose of those things, God gives you and God gives me not as a shaming or judging element, but as an element of redemption. That God might speak into your life truth and beauty. He might speak into your life truth and healing. It's why we can't cherry pick. We can't look at one section of the Bible and not look at another section of the Bible. We get this whole thing. It's why we can't on this stage, we, we can't preach to you from one book. I promise you, if you wanted better sermons from me, I would pick one good book and I would really, really get to know it. And then you'd never hear anything else. I mean, even Jimmy doesn't just preach from Luke, right? Because the point is the entirety of Scripture. Because you need to hear when God says he hates sin, he means it. And when God says there is great evil in the world that he will pour out wrath against, he means it. And yet it is united deeply, passionately, savagely to a God who died for you. A God who holistically felt physical, mental, spiritual, emotional pain and suffering and death out of his great love in the midst of a story and a plan that he had planned with the Father since before the creation of the world. That's the God you love. That's the God you serve. Not an academic tome that you need to figure out. Not a book that is boring that you get to move past when you graduate from high school or college. Not a guilt-ridden thing that hopefully you can just sort of play roulette with and look at and hope to get something out of. But rather the will of God given to you and I a means out of which God says, I actually want to know you. I actually want to love you. I actually want to change you. This exists because God loves you. Have you ever thought about that? This exists not out of a burden to you. This exists because where would we be? Where would you and I be if we had to pay crazy people to read it for you? And to tell you what it means. I promise you, my heart is not holy enough to tell you things that are not so sin-laden out of my own soul that I wouldn't grab power for myself. And nobody who stands on this stage cannot say the same. I need God speaking through that book to be able to stand here. I need God speaking through that book to write songs that are not simply laden with platitudes about how awesome we are. I need God to speak through that book not to build temples and walls that exalt us in in town, at in Atlanta, and say how awesome and rich and amazing and cool we are, and you will be the same if you come here. I need God speaking out of that book, and so do you. So pick up your Bible this week. Engage it with other people. 
Sing your Bible this week. But don't feel burdened. Feel loved. Because God is changing you through Scripture. Let's pray. Jesus, we do, we long for that. Because the reality is, is in five minutes we're going to forget it. We're going to remember why a sentence or a chapter doesn't make sense to us. A doubt we have. A question we have been nursing since perhaps decades. Or we'll just forget because life is hard, God. Meet us in those moments, please. Help us not feel shame, but give us longing and hunger for you. And may that longing and hunger be expressed in all the ways you give us to express it. That we would talk to you in prayer and we would meet you in worship and we would read and we'd learn and we'd meet you in your word. Pray in your name. Amen.